Uh, new year, new sermon series. We are going to jump into uh, uh, an indefinitely long sermon series. I don't know. Don't know how long this one's going to be. Um, but really, the, uh, the impetus behind this sermon series was that um, the Old Testament can be confusing. It can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. It can be um, what in the world is going on. And, ooh, you read certain passages and you're like, oh, this is uh, hard to explain to my non-Christian friend that uh, we serve a good God. And this is a little bit weird, right? There's a lot going on. And um, truthfully, once you get into the sermon series, to do a kind of a flyover, a high, high view, 30,000-foot flyover of the Old Testament, to try to help us to get our footing in the Old Testament. Make some more sense of it. Feel like by the end of it, you could read the Old Testament and you'd be like, okay, I don't know how to explain all these passages, but I at least get the flow of the Old Testament. I see why it matters, right? It can be easy in our context. We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus to be like, why do I need to read the Old Testament? I, uh, we have Jesus. We have the New Testament. The Old Testament is, is, is done, right? Not really. No, wrong. All right? It's the foundation for the New Testament. Um, it's so, so vital that we get it. We're so, so uh, rich in, in themes and theology and ideas that, that sometimes get transformed, sometimes continue on into the New Testament, sometimes get transformed by Jesus or Paul, um, sometimes get eradicated for good reason, but kind of replaced with something even richer and more beautiful. And so um, it is important for us in 2024 to, to be able to work our way through the Old Testament, to get the, the, the ideas, the themes, uh, to walk through it. And uh, gosh, trust me, there's so much beautiful, rich, amazing things to be learned about God, about ourselves, about this world in the Old Testament. And so that's kind of the vision for this sermon series. Again, really, I just have planned out Genesis 1 through 3, and then after that, it's kind of like, well, we'll see what's going to happen. But that's me. I'm not a very far planner. I'm just kind of like, yeah, this is what I'm doing next week, so we'll figure out the next week come next week, right? That's how I kind of operate. So, But we're going to do that this morning. Um, I will say this. Um, I am very much indebted to John H. Walton. Uh, he is a professor at Wheaton College in Chicago. Uh, his books, uh, he is one of the kind of the leading uh, scholars in Genesis and really the Old Testament in general. He has written some amazing books. Um, the main points I'm making today very much come from him, so credit due where credit is due. All right, so these are his ideas. They're not mine. Don't look at me and be like, oh, man, you're so wise. No, I just read. You know, that's it. I just read and I kind of regurgitate to people, right? Um, but I do, uh, I, 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 uh, I agree with him. I think he has some really strong points, faithful uh, interpretation of God's word. So uh, I agree with him. And so I'm going to kind of be bringing forth these ideas from him. Okay? Makes sense? We're all on the same page? Cool. All right. Well, some first things to know, because we're going to be starting to talk about Genesis 1. Two things. Traditionally, traditionally, it has been held that the writer of Genesis, the book of Genesis, is Moses. Okay? Uh, this would make sense. Uh, can't, no, we're not going to spend enough time like really diving into why this is, but it's just traditionally been held. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, it is again traditionally held that he wrote those while in the 40 years in the desert, the desert wandering. So the slaves uh, were kind of released from Egypt. God delivered them from Egypt. Right? They sin against God, and then they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. It has traditionally been held that in that time period is when Moses wrote down the first five books of the Bible. Traditionally held. Are there other views on it? Yes, but usually that's where it is. All right. So the dates to keep in mind is that Genesis was probably, again, traditionally written somewhere between 1446 B.C., so think 3,400 years ago. That was at least the traditional date held, that that's when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt. And then 40 years after that, 1406 B.C., somewhere in that window, Moses wrote it. That's important to grasp, um, as we will see as we get going. So, without further ado, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 1, verses 
uh, all of chapter 1, and then three verses of chapter 2, all right? We are all probably familiar with Genesis 1, and it talks about a seven-day creation story, right? It would behoove us, I love that word, if we are trying to interpret this passage, to understand it, what is it talking about here? If we come across the number seven, we should immediately look at the number seven. Number seven is an incredibly important number to ancient Israelites, and really all the way up through first century Jews. It's an important number. It's hard to really have a, a really good uh, uh, modern metaphor for it. I guess the closest one I can ever think of is the number 23 in basketball. It is just so iconic. You think of basketball, you want the number 23. It means you're either you think you are the best person on the court or you actually are the best person on the court. It could be one of two of those, all right? You never quite can tell. But that's an important number. And so to them, the number seven was this incredibly rich, symbolic number that we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. So it would behoove us. <laughs> I love that word. Yes. Definitely. I just want to make sure that was clear. Thank you. Based on what you said, like, no, he had three sisters. Correct. He wrote down what was handed down already, generation after generation. Excellent point. Excellent point. Absolutely. He did not make these up. He did not just, okay, well, what should we do on board and let's write down some fun stories for our people. Yes. Uh, writing was not popular, actually. Uh, you really didn't write very much. A lot of people weren't literate during the Old Testament, even New Testament. So everything was oral, very much so. You're constantly oral traditions, talking about these stories. And so it just came to a point in the desert where this would be good for us to write it down and to have it in one confined space. And so, yes, that's when he kind of brought it all together in a single document. So that is exactly right. That's a great point. Correct. The word of God said it's not going to happen. That's exact. All of God's people in the desert together, mm -hmm. and he wrote down what was already in the Bible. Amen. Exactly right. I hope you heard that. Because, yes, this very much separates us from, say, Islam, where the angel Gabriel dictates to Muhammad the Quran, essentially, and he just writes down what he's hearing. This is very different. Uh, Moses, again, these are the stories that the Israelites, um, again, believed, revealed from God about Abraham. They knew these stories. They talked about them. And so, again, it just came to the opportunity where Moses was, hey, we need to put these into a whole. This makes sense because what does Deuteronomy talk about? Write the law on your doorposts write them on your heart, write them everywhere, constantly be looking at this law, constantly be looking at these stories, because they will guide you to obey the law. And so very much makes sense. Thank you, John. Hey, I'm totally up for people working, you know, adding stuff. Let's make sure our iron sharpens iron. So thank you, John. I appreciate it. Okay, back to day seven. We know seven is important. We need to look at day seven in order to understand everything that comes before it. So let's look at day seven. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter, uh, day seven might actually be chapter two. Let's see here. Yes, chapter two. We'll go verse one and two and three. Um, I do not have it actually written. I didn't feel like writing the entire chapter. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I just didn't. So I encourage you, especially since we're really going through the Bible, um, and we're going to comb through it. encourage you to bring your Bibles. you got a phone, Bible app it. Look at it. It's really important because we want to see certain things. I want to show you as we read it, okay? So, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, okay? But the, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with it, we understand that day seven, God rests. What does it mean that God rests? What does that mean? I'll tell you this, spoiler alert, it's not that he relaxed or took a break or just sat in his lazy boy, put up his feet and was like, oh, thank goodness I'm done with that. I need a break. We know God does not tire. God does not sleep. We know this. Resting is actually a very interesting word that comes from the ancient Near East. Now, ancient Near Eastern culture, I do have a map for you. Uh, if you want to go to the map slide. So just to be somewhat familiar, again, uh, this is a map of the ancient Near East in the time of the patriarchs. So again, we're, we're a little bit before Moses and the Israelites. But something just to grasp is that with ideas, um, regions can have common worldviews. Okay? Again, just a common way of looking at the world. And I'll show you later in the, in the uh, sermon another way that the Israelites still shared a common way of looking at the world. Obviously, they differed from the other religions around them. They did not believe the same God. They didn't borrow. That's kind of a wrong way of, of looking at it. It'd be the same. Notice your, uh, uh, your uh, what, what is that called, the legend? Um, Israel is only about 400 miles top to bottom. Now, I know it's Canaan, but when they eventually take over, um, that's a very small region. That's, uh, 400 miles from here is is what? It's, uh, I don't know, 250 miles from Salina to the border of Colorado and Kansas. All right, so you can maybe say from Salina to Denver is about 400 miles. We think, it big picture-wise, worldview-wise, similarly to those in Denver. I have a brother in Denver. We still think similarly about the world, okay? So regions had common ways of grasping their worldviews, and that's important because what we find is that in this ancient Near East, a common way of talking about gods and temples was that when the temple was built, the god would come into the temple and rest. What does that mean? What does that mean? Resting in a temple has to do with a god taking up residency, dwelling, and then ruling. This is how the ancient Near East thought of temples. This is how they viewed temples. This is why everybody in the ancient Near East had temples. Because this is what they viewed about the world. They knew, they believed that gods, you serve them, everything had to do with gods, and so you built a temple, and they would eventually, once it was done, they would come into the temple, they would rest, and they would rule from this temple. Think of it this way. It makes perfect sense with our modern uh, kind of analogy. This is equivalent to our leader, our president, taking up residency in the White House. It's the house, the home. He lives in it. He also rules from it. It is a place of authority. We hear that all the time. The White House said this. The White House released this statement. It is his place of residency where he enacts authority. He signs executive orders. He vetoes things. He does a lot from that location. This is the idea. This is the concept from this ancient Near East that, again, not borrowing, not like stealing it. They're just, this is a common view of the world and how gods operated. And again, we know that there's only one God. All those gods are idols. We find that continually in the Old Testament. They're like, that's a false God. That's a dumb God. Why do you believe in that? The only real God is our God, Yahweh. But they just use that as a framework to show that God has now come into his temple, he is dwelling, and he is ruling. Let's see if we find this in the Bible somewhere else. We do. Psalm chapter 132, verses 7 through 8, and verses 13 through 14. It will be on the board. I wrote this one down for you guys. Listen to this. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Ark resided in the tabernacle or the temple when Solomon builds it. For the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Solomon built the temple of God. It is the capital of Israel when they take over the promised land. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. 
Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Again, I know this is very different from how we think of things, but resting, when we hear that God rested on the seventh day, again, it would prick our ears to see it as God dwelling and God ruling. All right, I'm going to give you a quote from, if that didn't make a whole lot of sense, here's a quote from John Walton. All right, hopefully this can drive it home. Here's the quote. It would not have been difficult for a reader from anywhere in the ancient Near East to take one quick look at the seven-day account and draw the conclusion that it was a temple story. That is because they knew something about the temples in the ancient world that is foreign to us. Divine rest in ancient temples was not a matter of simply residence. As we noted in Psalm 132, the temple was the center of God's rule. In the ancient world, the temple was the command center of the cosmos. It was the control room from where the God maintained order, made decrees, and exercised sovereignty. Temple building accounts often accompanied cosmologies, which is essentially creation accounts. Because after the God had established order, the focus of cosmologies in the ancient world, we're going to talk about that here in a second, he took control of that ordered system. This is the element that we are sadly missing when we read the Genesis account. God has ordered the cosmos with the purpose of taking up residence in it and ruling over it. That's wonderful. Day seven is the reason for days one through six. It is the fulfillment of God's purpose. Think of it this couple other ways to just drive this home and try to make it as clear as possible. Rest is a good word in our translation. Because you think about when the president takes up a residency or rests in the White House, he is resting from the previous activity of campaigning and organizing and hiring his cabinet and getting things all organized and ready so that once he steps into that White House on, you know, after his inauguration, he be can begin to rule and usually sign a bunch of executive orders on day one, right? We always hear that. What's your day one look like? I'm going to sign a bunch of these things, right? He rests from those activities. He moves into the ruling activities. Think of another way. Think of building your own computer. You're going to spend all this time putting all these pieces together, making sure you have a hard drive and the fan and, and the RAM, and I don't know computers very well, so. But they're all the pieces. You put them all together, get them all in place, and then what? You rest from that activity, and now you actually sit down at the computer, and you use the computer for its intended purposes. This is the idea, the concept in their mind. And I know this is foreign to us, because we read Genesis 1, we're like, oh yeah, uh, God created everything in six days, and then he rested, he relaxed. Um, can we move on to Genesis 2? Come on, Grant, why are you muddling this up? Well, we miss this beautiful, beautiful concept of that of the temple is that God is ordering this sacred space. That's why I titled it, the creation of sacred space. He's creating this sacred space. He's ordering it with the intended purpose of now dwelling in it and ruling and reigning over it. That's the intended purpose behind that. And again, man, you want to understand the Old Testament? You're going to constantly run up with this idea of God trying to dwell with his people. Eventually, after the Exodus, what does God do? He talks to Moses and says, you're going to build a tabernacle. And I'm going to dwell with you. And you're going to be my people and I will be your God. And they do that. And the tabernacle has tons of allusions to creation story. To the Garden of Eden, as we'll talk about next week. It's wonderful because the weird word... The tabernacle, the temple, is a microcosm of the entire cosmos. It's a small, condensed form. But God is taking up residency and dwelling in all of creation, ruling over all of creation. And what's amazing is he moves his massive control center into this tabernacle. He says, this is where I'll reign. I will dwell with you. How wonderful. Man, take it even further. After the tabernacle, you eventually get Solomon who builds a temple for God. And a wonderful thing, and check this out, guess how many days Solomon spent inaugurating this temple? Seven days. This illusion, this number is important. There is a temple being built here in days one through six. 
There is ordering, bringing function to this good creation of God with the intended purpose of God coming into it and ruling over it. And we see that, we'll see that even more beautifully next week when we talk about Adam and Eve, when we talk about the garden, as we see that intimacy, God walking in the garden. He wanted to dwell with us. He has always wanted to dwell with us. As my dad was saying, he's always wanted intimate relationship with us. Golly, even after Solomon's temple, fast forward to Jesus. The most intimacy, uh, well, actually, very more intimate than the temple. Now we get God in flesh with us. With us. Trying to have relationship with us. Trying to dwell with us. Dwell with us. And then check this out. You go even further, and I would say even more intimately, is that after Jesus leaves, who comes? The Spirit of God. And now the Spirit of God resides in each and every one of us. Even more intimate. I love that. People are like, the Holy Spirit's even more intimate than if Jesus was alive here on this earth. Jesus would be outside of you. Now you get the Spirit of God inside of you, dwelling in you, which causes Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to say, your body is a temple to the Lord. God is dwelling inside of you. So pursue holiness. Don't, don't defile that temple. Don't be like the Israelites in the Old Testament who constantly were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. The priests weren't uh, obeying the rules of the temple, setting up other gods in the temple. Oh, horrible. Horrible. Be holy. Be holy unto the Lord. Man, I, I'm, I'm doing my conclusion already, but I think it's just time. Check this out even more beautifully. Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter in the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22, and then into chapter 22. Listen to this. John, who is kind of the writer of this book, says this. He's talking in first person. I did not see a temple in the city, the new Jerusalem. I did not see a temple. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. We're going to talk about those being in the creation story here. Very much an allusion to the creation story. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. Day one. Night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then, chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. We're going to talk about next week, the rivers, the great rivers that go through Eden. Always a huge imagery there. Always big symbolism about that. We'll talk about that next week. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. We know the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Chapter 3 of Genesis, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. Intimacy. Intimacy, like in the garden with Adam and Eve when God walked in the cool of the day. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night again. Creation. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. In order to understand the Old Testament, you will constantly run up against these allusions to temples. And we see this quite clearly from chapter 1, that temple story. God is creating the sacred space for him to dwell in with us, to be with us, and for us to rule over this good sacred space with him. And we'll talk about that next week and what that really drives at home. But I just want us to really get this idea. It's here in chapter 1, this temple story. God creating this sacred space. And it's just wonderful. And again, we can miss it so quickly if we just jump to 
okay, well, uh, is the world created in six days, or was it six ages, or, man, you missed the temple imagery. And the fact that God was creating a space for him to come in to be intimate and relational with us, for us to rule over this good creation, to be image bearers, reflecting his glory to all the animals, all the creation. This is why Romans chapter 8, one of probably the, arguably the most biggest compact chapter in all the New Testament, says creation longs for the children of God to be revealed. As in, a, as in childbirth. Because it was so affected by sin of Adam and Eve. So affected. And it longs for us. Creation to be redeemed. To see the redemption. Man, there's so much here. And I don't want us to miss it. Because we're trying to date the earth through Genesis 1. Let's look at it as a temple story. God creating a sacred space for him to rule and reign over. So let's go to the first six days. Let's take a peek at them. Let's see if this concept really comes through. Um, again, give us some guidance. You're going to see the word create. All right, this is going to be a, a... All right, we'll see how we do this. That word in Hebrew, barah, or asa, one of those two, are kind of the two words translated as create. Again, conceptually, you've got to put yourself back into an ancient Near Eastern Israelite mindset and how they viewed creation was this. It was not necessarily uh, forming the material substance of something that we would think of in our nowadays. We think very scientifically. That's very consistent across the board. We see things very scientifically in our culture in our time period. So again, it makes sense why we go to Genesis 1, we're like, okay, how was this made? And when was this made? We're trying to answer these scientific questions. That's not how they viewed something. Think of it this way. Um, when would you say you create a rocking chair? Would you say the rocking chair is created when the materials are all laid out before you? Or when you put them together and can now sit in it? When is the chair created? Think of a company. When is a company created? Is it when you start, you finally buy the structure, your brick and mortar, and, and you go in and you start, you know, oh yeah, let's, uh, you know, we need this place, it's gonna be our warehouse, and this is gonna be where our accountants work, and this is gonna be where our salespeople are, and this is gonna be, you know, where my executive officers, uh, offices are, uh, right? It can get a little bit uh, muddied real quick. What is creation? And to them, creation was when something was given a function. Separation, naming, function. That's your kind of your second point, the three things. To them, when they created, when God created something, it was because he separated it, he named it, and he gave it a function. So again, just to kind of stay on that company kind of metaphor, in these six days, you can kind of view it as God coming into a space, a building, separating the floors. This floor will be our warehouse. It's where we will distribute our goods. This floor will be where our accountants work. This floor will be where this happens. This floor will be where this happens. And on day seven when he rests, it's when, hey, the owner comes into the building. Everybody's ready to go. They're standing by their cubicles. And he says, let's do this. Day one of the business. Boom. That's kind of what is going on with chapter uh, the, the creation story, days one through six. So let's see this, see if you can see it. Open up your Bibles, chapter one. I'll back up real quick with chapter one, verse one. Verse one has commonly been held very across the board as a thesis statement for all that is to come. It works very nicely with the end of chapter uh, beginning of chapter 2, it's kind of a bookend. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And essentially, you can almost interpret it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how he did it. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Again, John Walton, I would agree with him, formless and void kind of connotes that uh, the material brick and mortar of our company is there. There's just no function. Nobody's taking up residency. It's just there. 
Um, again, try to, this is good for me to be very specific. If you were to ask an Israelite, did God create that material substance? Did he create that brick and mortar building? They would say, duh, why are you even asking that? Of course God did. But this is not the story that talks about how God made the house. All right, we know the difference between making a house and making a home, right? We understand that in our culture. Making a house, if I say, I'm going to make a house, you'd be like, okay, well, are you pouring the foundation? Are you building the superstructure? Are you putting in pipe, the plumbing? Are you putting in the electrical system? Are you putting up drywall? Are you painting? What are you doing? Yeah, that makes sense. If I say, I'm building a home, I'm making a home. What am I doing? I'm probably organizing, coming into my home. This is going to be my living room. And guess what? I'm going to get furniture that, that goes with the function of this room. This is the living room, so I'm probably going to get a couch. I'm going to get a big old TV, right? I'm going to get some comfy chairs. Uh, the woman who owned my house before me used a room for a very different purpose than I use it for. Because I came into it and I said, this is how I'm going to order this home. And I'm going to put furniture in this room that corresponds with how I want to use it. Separation, name, function. So here we go. Day one, verse three, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated, one, the light from the darkness. God called the light day, named it, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We will get function more precisely in day four. Again, a common observation has been that day one and day four go together, day two and day five go together, day three and day six go together. Wonderful parallelism. We're going to see that here shortly. Again, real quick, if we read this text trying to date the material cosmos, when God created it, if we're trying to date it, we come into a really big textual issue immediately. Day one says that God created, God said, let there be light. Why doesn't he call light, light? If he's talking about the actual physical material creation of light particles, we would assume he would call it light. He calls it day. Second big thing, day four, where did the ancient Near Eastern people get light from? They didn't get it from a LED light bulb or a fluorescent. The sun. The sun is not created until day four. That's an issue for people trying to date the earth from Genesis 1. God created light on day one, but he didn't create the sun until day four. Okay? I know we want to jump to easily. Well, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I know we can all do that, but let's not, let's be disciplined. Let's not pull that card until, unless that is all we've gotten. Second issue, third issue. Day three, if it's a material creation account, day three if you look at verse 11, the land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees on the land that bear fruit, right? I am not a botanist, but I don't think those survive without sunlight, okay? I am not trying to burst anybody's bubble. I'm not trying to be insensitive at all. I uh, Believe me, I remember the first time I heard this, I was a senior in college, and I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, man, this is different. My world's being rocked a little bit, and I'm having some troubles, right? I have much empathy for people who, have you ever heard of deconstructionism of your faith? I have tremendous empathy. I've gone through two of them, all right? And, and it happens. You read the Bible, and you read it, and you keep learning and growing, and every once in a while you come to a point where it's like, here is something very different than I grew up with, and I'm seeing this very different. And it can be scary. You'd be like, oh, wait a minute. I've never seen it this way. And it can be scary, it can be, one, it can be easy to be like, well, I'm just going to reject it and I don't care. Well, let's be wise, let's give it its place, let's listen to it, let's ask more questions. We don't have to accept it hook, line, and sinker day one, but there's something here. Again, what is, it, what is happening here is this is not a material creation account where God is creating the material substance of the cosmos. He is instead bringing order. He is bringing function. And that's the story that Moses is writing here. That's what they cared about. They cared about an ordered system. Why order is so important to the Israelites. 
is that Satan and sin is disorder, chaos. It's disordered. That's a huge, huge theme throughout the whole Old Testament is that you're getting this order wrong. The intended purpose of this creation was for you, for, for you as humans to reflect the image of God and His glory into all the earth. It was to do things God's way. And when you don't do things God's way, we get disorder. We get disorder in our creation. That's what we dealt with. And so they're showing that God coming into this sacred space is creating order. The night and the day is really, it's time. God's creating time. Look at day 4, verses 14 and on. Let the lights be in the vault of the sky to separate, separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, function, and days and years, and let them be lights on the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, sun and the moon. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. God is making time, and he's creating that ordered idea of time. It's a wonderful thing. Let's go to day two. Genesis 1, 6-8. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, named it. And again, it's purpose to separate the waters from the water. It's function. If we want to have a little fun, uh, show the picture of cosmic geography. <laughs> Here's a fun picture to show you how differently they viewed the world than we did. Um, I, when I was all through college, we had to draw this all the time. I didn't draw mine because I was like, it's going to look real bad. But this was a good picture that did a good job. Uh, Kent, any ideas how far away the sun or the moon is from the Earth? Any off the top of your head? I know you're an astrology guy. Astronomy guy, maybe, is a better word to say. <laughs> 93 million miles, the sun from the earth. An ancient Israelite would disagree with you vehemently, passionately. The sun is inside the sky. That's how they viewed it. They literally viewed it that way. I mean, look, they're 3,400 years away from us. They didn't have telescopes. You look up in the sky, and you're like, yeah, the sun's right there. Right? I mean, let's not be too hard on them. All right? The moon is the same thing. The stars, all of them, we can see them. That's why in the third day, it says put them in the vault of the sky. They thought this was a physical barrier. They thought the sky was, was literally like the Truman Show when he's sailing, and all of a sudden he runs into the side of the dome. Like, that's what they thought would happen. They did not think of the sky as we do, that it's atmospheric, it's gaseous, and you can actually make it through it in a ship. They thought mountains held up the firmament. That is why mountains are always referred to uh, kind of in these, what we would maybe say, spiritual ways. Uh, you have the high places is a common phrase you'll see in the Old Testament. It's because look how close you are to this heavenly realm. The mountains are holding up the sky. So if you go there, that's where uh, you're closest to God. It's a common worldview belief. Um, the waters are commonly referred to. They, they literally thought water was above the sky. Again, where does rain come from? It comes from the sky. So they thought, literally, you had holes in the sky, the firmament, and that's where water came down. They also viewed water in a little bit mysterious way. They thought it was chaotic. Um, it was a little bit disorderly. That's how they viewed these things. So this water, they thought water was, again, under the earth, um, because again, where does water come from? You could go to a spring or the mouth of a river and coming up out of the water. So they thought that, but it was very like, ooh, disorder. That's why the flood, we'll eventually get to the flood account. That's why it's such an interesting account. And so much God's great order on the earth is undone with disorder. I'll show that here in a second with uh, Genesis chapter 8. This is just a cool, interesting picture to show you. They viewed the world differently. And what's neat is that God didn't come in and was like, you know what, well, you guys are idiots, okay? They're not a physical barrier. Come on, right? He didn't seem it necessary. He's communicating a message, and he was fine with them, not having the scientifically correct view of the world. 
Again, we'll find this when they talk about they thought with their hearts. They literally thought your thoughts came from your heart, not in a romantic way, in a literal physiological way. It was either your heart, your intestines, or your kidneys. And God never saw it as important to change that and be like, hey, you guys don't know the body. Okay, let me instruct you. You think with your brain. It's in your head. He never felt that way. It's a great question. Why? But he just didn't seem it necessary. He spoke to them on their terms. This is John Walton, in, in my view. He spoke to them on their terms. And guess what? God has to speak on us on our terms. Believe it or not, we are not all-knowing. God looks at us and says, you know what, uh, Greg, you're an idiot. You think this about the world? Oh, my gosh. Jeez. Let me, let me tell you. You're so wrong. He's doing that to our culture as well. And so eventually he had to just speak to somebody on their terms and the way they viewed the world to communicate his perfect message. And he did it. He did it wonderfully. Verse uh, day two, he creates the sky, he creates his vault. Day five, he fills those areas, the sky and the waters with creatures. It's beautiful. Again, He's not only creating functions, but he's creating uh, things that will carry out these functions, like these creatures. They're going to team. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to multiply. Day 3 in verses 9 through 13, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear. Again, separating the sea from the ground. God called the dry ground land. He names it. What's his purpose? It's going to grow plants and sea-bearing plants and trees to eat and food. It's wonderful. And again, day six, what's going to inhabit this land area? Livestock and human beings. This is a wonderful account of God, once again, creating a sacred space for his dwelling. And he is creating order in this sacred space. He's creating time. He's creating weather systems. He's creating food for these human beings to live in and to rule over. We miss this if we look at it trying to date the earth or the cosmos and to say, well, it happened in six days. And so the earth must be somewhere between 6,000 and 20,000 years old. We miss it. Uh, the Bible uh, does not make a scientific claim this is so recent in history that we even care about the dating of the earth. It's so recent in scientific history. It's not a question that the writer, if it is Moses, is trying to answer. They knew God created it. The how seemed unimportant to them. But they seemed it was important for them to show that God created order in a way that things are supposed to be here on earth. This is why wisdom in the Old Testament is such a big thing because wisdom is all about figuring out this ordered system. Not figuring it out, but it's going to God saying, you created order and the right way to live in this sacred space where you are inhabiting and ruling over. And wisdom is, is, is finding that. It's, it's not just finding it from a knowledge standpoint, but it's walking in that. It's obeying it. It's living that way. That is wisdom. That is the foundation of wisdom. And wisdom literature, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, will have so many allusions to the creation story. Because wisdom is founded on this creation story that God created order, an ordered system. I'll show you, I promised you, Genesis chapter 8, if you want to see how the flood, just a little foretaste, how the flood was really going at this disorder and undoing the order of God's good creation. Genesis chapter 8, verses 22. This is after the flood. God is making a covenant with Noah. And he says this beautiful thing. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest. Has to do with food, day three. Cold and heat, summer and winter. Weather, day two. Day and night. Day one will never cease. I love that. Man, let's see if we can drive this home one last time. 
my, my intention, again, I'm, I'm not an argumentative person by any means. <laughs> I, I just seek truth, and I just want to know the truth of God's word. And, and I think John Walton has done a great job being faithful to the text and showing us that there's so much more rich theology going on here. And in our modern society in America, we can constantly go to it trying to figure out the material age of our world. And he's saying, yeah, you're just going to miss so much if that is your focus. You're going to miss that God created this sacred space, this place with the intention to fill it, to rule in it, to be with us. That's the focus of it. And again, we can assume the Israelites took it for granted that God created it all. They just didn't really care when God created it all. Only that God created order. And they believe that was revealed to them Again, as Don was kind of talking about, it wasn't just that they made it up. It wasn't that they just sat around like, how do we talk about this world? It's that God revealed it to them, showing this to them. So they were encouraging them. And again, this makes perfect sense. If Moses is writing this, he has just been given the law. Order. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be a holy priesthood, a nation of priests unto me. Order. Rules, a way, kind of the, the home rules. You live in this house, this is how we do things in this house. There will be order in this house. There will not be chaos. And we will see in a couple weeks this serpent figure that is trying to enact chaos, bring disorder. And we see through sin that all of these wonderful, great, uh, functioning, ordered system that God has built for him to reign in, sin constantly is muddying these things up. Constantly thwarting them, making them just uh, uh, truly just, uh, just not as good. We will see the punishment for Adam and Eve. God goes after some of these ordered systems. The wheat, you're harvesting, they're going to bring up thorns. I told you to be fruitful and multiply. The woman's going to have excessive pain in childbirth. He's going after this order system. It's so important. And so why is it so important to us? Well, who's reigning? God has built this creation for the intention to fill it and to reign, the sacred space. And who's reigning in your life? Who's ruling in your temple? You are a temple unto the Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Who's ruling? You, God, or something else. Are we contributing to Satan's work of disorder and dysfunction in God's good creation? Or are we being a part of God's reordering system? What are we doing? How intentionally are you seeking after wisdom? It's a great question. Man. Again, in interpreting the Old Testament, you will find probably no single symbol bigger than the temple. Jesus will go after it. Probably what got him killed was what he said against the temple and against his relationship with God, undoubtedly. Man, the temple is a huge, huge uh, concept. And if we want to understand the Old Testament, we want to feel like we have our footing in it, uh, then it would behoove us to really grasp this idea of the temple and that this whole world is God's sacred space of him ruling in it. And, uh, and undoubtedly, application-wise, uh, let's make sure we're not uh, uh, subverting or uh, supplanting the true ruler of this world with ourselves or something else. And then as Jason kind of mentioned, make sure we're not putting anything other rulers, other idols. This is why the Ten Commandments, no idols, no other gods beside me. Nope, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Disorder, dysfunction. I'm the only one up there. Our world is constantly just creates more disorder in our world and in our lives. I know I'm late, but I want to give a, a chance for a response because I know this is somewhat new. It can be different. And, and I'm, if there are questions or concerns or, hey, can you explain this all over again? I wasn't paying attention. That's cool, too. We can stick around. I'm fine with that. But uh, if there are any questions or concerns, share them. I, I, I will not hide. If there's anything. Text me, call me, find me. Afterwards, we'll set up a time, chat. Uh, John Walton's book, 
The Lost World of Genesis 1, could not highly recommend it enough. It's a great book. He does a way greater job of explaining and going far more deeply into it um, and these ideas and just showing um, really the theological richness of these chapters. So, um, give you a chance to come up with anything. All right. All right. Well, if you stand with me, we'll close in prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you are the creator of heaven and earth and all that is in it. We're so grateful that it is good, and it is good, and we have experienced the goodness of it all. Father God, we thank you that your intended purpose was to fill it with your presence. You are not a distant God. You are not a clockmaker who sets it in motion and then removes himself from the procedures. God, you are intimately involved in the ordering of this good cosmos. We thank you that you are sustaining it each and every day. Man, I know it's hard. Uh, you know it's hard for us and our scientifically minded and, and such our, our views of natural laws. It's hard for us to see you uh, doing these things, you behind them, but we trust by faith, God, by your word, that you are involved in them. They are good. We're so grateful for that, God. And so, Lord, we just want to continue to live in this way. Uh, live in your home according to your rules, not, uh, not according to our own, God, but trusting the wisdom of your rules. They're good for us. They're good for each and every one of us. They're good for our world because you created it that way. Wisdom being the first of all your creations. God, help us this week to uh, uh, just continue to live in such a way and just can continue uh, to trust your presence in each and every one of our lives and to live holy lives because we are a temple unto you, your Holy Spirit being inside us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do so. Encourage us, quicken our spirits, give us energy, uh, work in us all to will and to act according to your good purposes. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.